All right, we are in Leviticus chapter 18. We had intended to get there last week, but uh, alas, we got into a good. Oops, that's another one. We got into a really good conversation about the Lord's Supper, and so uh, I was happy about that. But uh, we're going to continue today in Leviticus 18, which is, as I said last week, a sixth commandment chapter. Now, in the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, not just in that narrow sense of don't cheat on your spouse, but in the broader sense of how we handle our, our bodies, how we attend to our sexuality, uh, which obviously is an important topic to discuss in our culture today. So get in there to Leviticus 18, and we're going to pick up, we, we chatted about the first four verses. I want to pick up in verse 5, <clears throat> which says this, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Now, this verse is easy to just brush right past and get into the, the bulk of the rest of the chapter. But in fact, this is a, a verse that comes up and is quoted multiple times in the New Testament by Paul as well as perhaps by Jesus himself. It's a significant verse for what it conveys about what we might call the righteousness of the law, what Paul calls the righteousness of the law, the righteousness that comes from keeping the law. And the important point to draw here in verse 5 is that it is conditional. That little word can be so problematic. I'm talking about the word if. Two letters, but all kinds of trouble. If a person does them, he shall live by them. This is the righteousness that comes from the law, as Paul says. And how, what would you contrast that with? The righteousness of the law versus what? Well, think about it, and let's go, let's go to where Paul's going to talk about it, in Romans chapter 10. So jump ahead to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 10. Paul is going to quote just this verse and show us what we ought to uh, compare it and contrast it with. All right. Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Alluding here to the verse just read from Leviticus. But, Paul continues, the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What Paul is saying here is not that the righteousness of the law is false, simply that it is insufficient. And this, as he goes on, or he says earlier there in, in Romans 10, this is where the, uh, many of the Jews of his day had misunderstood the message because they had pursued a righteousness based on the law and it would never, ever stop. They could never do enough. They could never keep it. That's why Paul says the, uh, the Christ is the end of the law. He is the culmination of the law. The buck stops here, as it were, with Jesus. So that now we have a righteousness based not on the law and on our, on our um, uh, keeping of the commandments, but instead a righteousness based on faith, which is to say on Christ and his keeping of the commandments in our place. And I used this um, image in a sermon last year. I think it was an online sermon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is a famous icon called the Ladder of Divine Ascent. The Ladder of Divine Ascent. And I think that this is a, a handy way of illustrating these two ways of thinking about our righteousness. A righteousness based on the law versus a righteousness based on faith. So when we think about a righteousness based on the law, the righteousness of the law, it's us climbing this ladder, okay? We're, we're working hard, we're trying to keep the law, we're doing all that we can to go higher and higher. Meanwhile, we've got, you see all the devils and the demons alongside here that are constantly pulling at us, as well as our own sinful nature. And so people are always getting pulled off. And to, to zoom in here a little bit, <clears throat> see at the bottom, 
there's this great goblin gobbling up uh, people as they are being uh, pulled astray by their sinful desires and by the evil one and by his minions. Um, so that finally, what is, is this? The, is this death? Is this the devil? I'm not sure exactly, but suffice it to say, as people are trying to climb up with a righteousness based on the law, they can't do it. They don't make it. They get pulled away and pulled astray. But this image also illustrates the righteousness that is based on faith. I want you to notice something, and this is not my own insight, but uh, a wonderful uh, video that uh, I saw a while back. Um, the uh, art expert who was breaking it down, points out, notice the color of the robe of the person who's being gobbled up there. Okay? This is significant because it shows up elsewhere in the painting. Where? Up at the top. Here is our Lord Jesus, also wearing that gold robe. What the, what the artist is suggesting is that Jesus is the one who gets gobbled up in our place, as it were. He is the one who is swallowed up by that great swallower of death, so that so much as we might fall off or be pulled astray, he's the one who has already defeated death from the inside out. And um, the, the uh, uh, art expert that I was learning this from also pointed out that you have on the ladder 30 rungs. Now the numbers 30 and 33, both kind of interchangeably, are significant in the history of Christianity as symbolic of the life of our Lord. Because Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry, he was 33 when he died and rose again. And what that suggests is that the whole life of faith is lived in, with, and under our Lord Jesus and his blessing, if you will. That we are striving and climbing, but it's not about our ascent, it's about his descent. As Paul said, it's not about us ascending up to heaven, it's about the word, our Lord Jesus, descending to us, coming down for us. That's the essence of the righteousness based on faith. It's about receptivity rather than activity. With me? And um, just to underscore the point, on the flip side of the icon, it has these Greek letters. So this is short for Iesus. So the first letter is Yoda, I, and the second one is a sigma. It's the last letter of the name of Jesus in Greek. Iesus Christos. Nike, Nika. So um, you're familiar with Nike, obviously. And Nike... <laughs> Just do it. Um, got a big Greek. Nike, it, come, it comes from the Greek. It yeah. does. Um, so Nike was the Greek god of victory, I guess. And uh, it, it's the Greek word that just means to conquer or to have victory. Okay? So what this is, says is Jesus conquers. Jesus has the victory. That's what the righteousness, the, the statement and the claim that the righteousness based on faith clings to and holds fast to. That Jesus has the victory even though in my Christian life, I might not be living the victorious life. He has lived the victorious life on my behalf. So as much as I fall off, as much as I stray, as much as I fall and fail, there is the Lord who has the victory already to pick me up. All right. Go ahead, what, George. Uh, the date was that it was done? It's Middle Ages. I, I want to say around 1,000, 1,100, something okay. like that. Mm -hmm. Well, but, you know, um, I'm not an artist, but I know that the whole idea of perspective, yes. seeing uh -huh. things in the distance, it's not there. No, right. It's just flat. Right, exactly. It's just it's just flat. It's a very, I mean, we would call it more of a, a primitive style, but I think yeah. that there's also um, some symbolic import to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe something like all, all have sinned, that all are seen in the same um, kind of perspective, if you will. Other thoughts or reflections on the righteousness based on faith versus that which is based on the law? Like, that's not what it's saying in Leviticus. Though. Right, exactly. So I mean, in Leviticus, what we have is the righteousness of, of the law. And when you use the word righteousness, this yeah. is a church word. You said to be, to me, to be made right, to be, yeah. to be uh, accepted by God. Right. Like, this is you're cleaned up. Now you're ready to be accepted by God. Right. That should be exactly. So to be to be righteous is to be in the right before God, to be acceptable um, to Him, and so that's where this. Paul saying that this righteousness that, that comes from the law, that's based on the law, says this is the, this is the catch word for it. If a person does them, he shall live by them. It's not a false statement. See? It's not an inaccurate statement. It's just that it's an insufficient one. And the whole story of the Old Testament is God's people striving to live up to the righteousness of the law and failing. And I'll go further than that. 
it's still the story today. It's not like Jesus came and everybody figured it out and now we're not striving to live by the law anymore, that righteousness. No, it's, I think it's, we all can have that sort of mentality uh, rather than the righteousness that's based on faith that says, my, my rightness, my holiness, my acceptability to the Lord comes not from my doing, but from God's doing on my behalf. So this is the, the kind of interesting tension that we live in is that, okay, we see the insufficiency of the law to justify and to save, but still the law stands as God's will for his human creatures. Um, so my question is, and this is a big question, but maybe we'll just take a couple minutes thinking about this. What role do you think God's law still has in the life of the Christian? What role do you think God's law still has in the life of the Christian? If you are saved by grace, through faith, not by your keeping of the law, that you live by the righteousness based on faith rather than based on the law, what place does the law have in our lives as believers? Or does it have any place? Yeah, Margo. It, it's kind of like a safeguard to help protect you. Okay, good. So a safeguard to help protect you and to protect everybody, right? Good. So this is what, um, when I'm talking to my confirmands, we'll, we'll just do a little bit of a, a confirmation recap here. This is what we call the curve. The, the use of the, of the law as, as a curve. Imagine that as a, as a curve. And why as a curve? A curve that kind of keeps things in place, right? It curbs evil. If we didn't have the law, then, you know, it could just be insanity, chaos. Moral guidelines. Yeah, it's the moral guidelines, or as uh, Paul says in Romans 2, it's the law written on the heart, right? It's the conscience. So that whether or not somebody believes in God, everybody has that innate sense of conscience. And in fact, we recognize when somebody doesn't, we have like clinical names for them, right? So that person's a sociopath or psychopath. They don't have any view of, of right or wrong. They just do whatever they darn well please, and they'll feel no, no compunction about it, no guilt. Um, and so in that sense, the, love, the law functions uh, as uh, a curb, as a guide. Yeah? Paul also says, just because we have the faith and, and whatever... Should we stop? Should we continue sinning? Yes, right. So no. Oh, bummer. Okay, um, that's right. And so, in that respect, what use, what function does the law serve still in our life? As, again, as a guide. As okay, as as a guide for those who have been forgiven already, right? So it's, it's it has this this function too, kind of like a, a roadmap that's directing us and pointing out here's God's will for us, and here's how we're going to live. Is there any other function or use that the, the law has that you can think of? Yeah. What's that? As a mirror. As a mirror. Okay. Tell, say more about that. Well, it's a reflection of, of who we are, and we see our sinfulness when we look in the mirror. Yeah, we see our sinfulness when we, when we look in the mirror, right? So keep, keep the lights down when you go in there, right? <laughs> um, it reflects back to us the ways in which we have, have failed to live up to God's intentions for us. And so you might say, you know, it's like... Mirror, mirrors it back. Okay. So, see it? This, this is what I, I teach to the confirmation kids. This little kind of mnemonic. And it spells law, exactly. So, the, the, the first use of the law, what we call the first use, the first function of it, is it's a, uh, a curb, okay? And that applies to all of, all of the world. It curbs evil, kind of keeps a top on evil. As bad as you think things might be in the world, Trust me, it could be a whole lot worse. Secondly, what we call the second use or function of the law is as a mirror, as Carla said, showing back to us, convicting us of our sin so that when we read Leviticus, or the law shows up in the New Testament too, right? It's not just in the Old Testament. And it convicts us. We hear it, like I uh, talked about in the, the sermon today. When we, when we hear Isaiah, the story of Isaiah, we think, I, yeah, I can be like Isaiah, right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. That's the law functioning in that second way. And then the third use, the third function of the law is as a guide, okay? As a guide as those who are already filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been saved. Now, because we have new hearts and we want to follow in the Lord's ways, again, like Isaiah, he goes from that place of fear to uh, eagerness, Right? Here am I, send me. A heart that's been reborn now says, God, what should I do? 
point me in the direction that you would have me go. And he says, I've, I've given you my law. This is, this is my will for you. Follow in this way. Yeah, Chip. So if you take Leviticus 18, which you continue to avoid, but if we, if we look at it, <laughs> it says, like, you know, don't have sex with your, your brother's sister's daughter-in-law. Spoiler, yes. You're really specific, right? So that way, like, curb, like, saying, don't do this. This is, this is bad for you. Right. Right? And then, the, in, in, that, in that instance, the mirror might be like, oh, look, at I'm, I'm uh, lusting over my neighbor's sister's brother's whatever right. wife, you know. And then, and the guy is saying, you know, I should, what, I should continue to pursue holiness through what God has given me in my, through my wife or. Right. That so, so that, yeah, this is good. So the, with the first use, I would say it's more, it's not as personal. It's more of a society sort of thing. So we can be grateful for that first use that, okay, so he started talking about it. So the next uh, dozen chapters or so, we're going to talk about incest, okay? So this is just, uh, this is a, uh, the, a first use of the law kind of thing that when humanity as a whole and, and society recognizes that incest is, is bad, okay? That's, I mean, that's not necessarily um, obvious to everybody, but it's the kind of thing that's generally accepted now. Um, that's that first use of the law. Second use of the law, you need to get out of that incestuous relationship that you have and be convicted by that. Oh, gosh, okay. Um, so not all, not all uh, words of law are going to be as applicable as others, right? Um, but then the third use of the law would be having been forgiven, having been renewed, now to resolve to strive to walk in this way. Okay. Yeah. Not, be, not to um, merit forgiveness thereby, but because this is, you, you desire to walk in his ways. Oh, that the Lord would guide my ways and lead my pathway still. I think something like that. The hymn goes. So. so I've heard more debates about the third use of the law amongst theologians and pastors than just about any other topic in the Christian faith. <laughs> why is it so, and I don't need all the answers, but right. why is it so controversial and, and maybe within the, I guess, the Lutheran world? Uh, among, in the Lutheran world in particular. Right, so right, yeah. um, Chip, Chip's bringing up a, a good point. So you guys, you probably would not necessarily be aware of this, but among um, theologians and, and Lutherans, there's an ongoing debate about this third use of the law. Um, I would say a lot of it stems from some words that Luther himself said, because Luther said, paraphrasing, something to the effect of, when I have been forgiven, when I have been made justified by Christ, then I don't need, I don't need anymore a thou shalt, but I just freely, spontaneously lead a life uh, in, in obedience to Christ. But the law no more has any hold on me. Martin Luther said a lot of stuff. Okay? He said a, a lot of things. So we want to take everything he says and you know, balance it out and so forth. But that's not the main, main reason, I would say. It's more just this theological contention that, look, the, the justified, they still need to hear that word of convicting law. But once you have the Holy Spirit, now the law can only uh, bring you back to that burden and curse. And so we're, we should, we're Christians now, we are free, and so the law doesn't impinge upon us anymore. Now taken to a real far position it, uh, is what's known as, where's my marker? Um, antinomian, okay? You need to know this for the test. <laughs> <laughs> antinomian, which literally means anti-law, okay? So an antinomian mentality says, ain't nobody can tell me to do nothing, all right? I'm forgiven, I'm justified, I'm free, so you get that law stuff away from me. Yeah, and Southern, right. <laughs> because, uh, that, I mean, that's taken to its fullest extent. And in fact, this played out historically. So 1517, the Reformation, we, we say, started with the, the nailing of the 95 Theses. 1521, Luther's here I stand moment. Uh, I, can, I can do no other. And then um, in the years after that, People did what they are so often prone to do. They took this message of free forgiveness and kind of what Leslie was alluding to before and said, cool, now we can do whatever we want. And specifically, now we can stick it to the emperor because I never wanted to listen to that guy anyway. He was such a drag. We're going to live however we want. And, and kind of chaos ensued. And what was called the Peasants' War. And so there was this theological issue that played out historically in real time. Luther was seeing some of the consequences when the message is not, um, how to put it, when the, the message wasn't framed in terms of um, law and gospel, OK? 
Okay? But if you ended up with what sometimes is called a gospel reductionism, where it's just, hey, Jesus set you free so you can do whatever you want. I mean, this is oversimplifying, right? But that's, in essence, what the message, the take-home for, for people is. And Luther came out of that and recognized, no, antinomian is not our position. We're not anti-law. Paul says the law is good and wise. The problem is us, right? The problem's in our hearts. The problem's not with God's law. And so we want to uphold it and affirm it. So, but it's a debate that, that continues to rage in theological circles still to this day. Is there a third use of the law? Should it be used? And I say, yes. Our Lutheran confessions say, yes. So, yeah, Margo. Well, that's because we're forgetful people. We are forgetful people. That's right. And so we need to be, on this side of heaven, we need to continually be reminded of, of God's law. When we get to the new creation, will we, will we still, still need it? I think it's an open question, but I think it's, it's fair to imagine that we will be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we won't need the direct instruction of the law anymore. Yeah, yeah. We can't graduate from the law. We can't graduate from the law, not in this life. Yeah, Court. Uh, I was going to ask this question before. Uh-huh. Adam and Eve didn't have the law. Right. They just... Well, they had one word of law, right? Yeah. There's a, here's, a tr- oh, yeah. here's the tree not to eat from. We yeah. know how that turned out. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's right. I mean, so I mean, in, in our, uh, in that original pre-fall state, they just, they did whatever their hand found to do, right? They were living in, in uh, perfect fellowship with God. And so they didn't need the law to be all spelled out for them. It was just what they naturally did. Now we need it. We have it written on our hearts. Okay. We have that in that first use of the law, what we call the natural law, but also God has codified it for us most especially in the Ten Commandments, but we would also say, in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount uh, throughout the Bible. It's not just one, one place, but throughout the, the Scriptures. So, all right. All right, as Chip's alluded to, I need to get into the rest of this because it's, it's, it's enough already. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and read through this. We're not going to go in depth into every component of incest, but just I think it, it's worth listening to this here. <clears throat> None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. What does this mean? I'll say more in a minute. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall... You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she's your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she's your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She's your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, their relatives. It's depravity, people. <clears throat> That's my own addition there. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. All right. Here you have a lot of stuff on incense. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit. Big takeaway here is that incest desecrates the community. It desecrates the community. Makes it unclean. And John Kleinig gives this handy diagram, which I've also put on your hand out there, the, the range of taboos against incest. Okay? Just in case you have any relatives you need to send this to, you can pass it along their way. All right, why is incest proscribed? Why is it not allowed? I mean, to us, it might seem like it's so obvious because it's gross and weird and you don't want to have kids with three eyeballs or whatever. Um, but it's interesting. There's the, reason, the rationale given here is, at its root, theological. <clears throat> First of all, all members of an extended family are part of one flesh. We'll talk more about the, the one flesh union here presently. But suffice it to say, when you get married, uh, God's telling us through Moses, when you are now united and all of these relatives are 
so to speak, brought up into that one flesh, are grafted into that one flesh. And so to violate uh, or to practice incest is to violate that one flesh union. Okay? You've been united to your husband, to your wife, but to uh, uncover the nakedness of all the rest of these, which is the, the second reason, um, that incest uncovers the nakedness of the family. Now, this is a strange phrase, and uh, let, let's talk about it. So there's a, um, a biblical backdrop to that, which anybody remember what the story is? You know a guy. That's right. Uh, this is in Genesis chapter 9. One of the more sordid affairs here. <clears throat> Noah, the man who found favor, the man who trusted God, was also simul justus et peccator, as we say, simultaneously saint and sinner, as illustrated here. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. It reminds me, I saw a, uh, a wino eating some grapes on the street, and I said to him, you have to wait. It's a joke. Um, think about it later. No? Sorry. It's from Mitch Hedberg. No, okay. Um, <clears throat> wow, tough crowd. Um, he be, he, <laughs> I just find it so interesting. He planted a vineyard, fast forward, he drank of the wine and became drunk. Like, <laughs> he, he moved right to it. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Okay, so here you have this scene of Noah. He's just, he's drunk. He's laid out, and the first son comes in and uncovers his nakedness, so to speak, here, which is, means his shame. Now his shame has been revealed to the family and, and beyond. But it goes, it goes further than that, although not, not strictly in this story, where nakedness is a shorthand for sexual identity, of course, but then also personal honor and modesty, okay? So to uncover nakedness carries with it a connotation of sexual relations. And I was looking at the, the NIV version, and that's how it translates. It just translates it as sexual relations. It keeps out the phrase uncover nakedness. But it has, so it's the sexual relations, but also that sense of personal shame, okay? Uh, so that's what we're talking about here with, with the incest. It's not just um, the, the sexual relations with your family members, but it goes even further than that. It's bringing about that shame and desecration on the family and on the community. Okay. Anything? So, so yeah, what should the younger son have done? What should the younger son have done? I mean, it's hard to say, right? I mean, what the older ones did, but... It says, so Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So, um, I don't know. What, what could he have done differently? Did he know? There's things that we're not told in here, right? Yeah. Um, so. He just it implies that he said nothing. Could have said nothing, right. Yeah, go ahead. It implies that he said, ah, you should have seen Dad. He was laying in the bed. Yeah, exactly. That he, That's the implication. Right. And that what was wrong. Right, that he, uh, that he brought, brought shame to him by not um, showing proper modesty and by, yeah, making of, of his dad a, a laughing stock rather than showing due reverence and respect. Is there another hand over here? Okay. Oh, do, do you still want to say something? No. no. Okay. Why was the curse on Canaan rather than on Ham? Than on because Ham. Ham was the one who... Right. <coughs> I mean, I think it's just, it's their, it's their line. Mm -hmm. So... Now, Canaan being the heir, uh, following in Ham's uh, lineage, I think that's why. Yeah, I mean, this is very, that's very much an Old Testament kind of thing. It goes, goes through the line from generation to generation, the sins of the fathers. So, all right. Well, and some scholars say that there's more that... There's more, yeah. Maybe there's more going on there, too, but we don't need to conjecture. Suffice it to say, 
it was bad news. It's a bad, bad moment in biblical history. Yeah. You know, the fall in the garden, you know, they, they went and hid yep. because they knew they were naked. Yep, that's right. You know, sin brings about shame, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Sin brings about shame. First thing that they do after the, the fall into sin, they recognize their nakedness and they cover it up because it, it, it is that reminder of, of the, the guilt that they have incurred and that separation that they now have with the God who made them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Hans. You have uh, Noah here and the idea of this is a bad thing is already there. It's, yeah. it's not a new idea. Right. Then you get up to like Abraham, right. who has a wife who is a sister, yeah. and uh, uh, Jacob, who has two sisters. Yes. Th things, things that are just, you know. I mean, so Chip and I were talking about this last week. There wouldn't be this long section on incest if it wasn't an issue, right? The, the fact, we can infer from the fact that the, they uh, really belabor the point and get so granular with the detail precisely because this was an issue. And to be sure, there had to be some degree of incest from the beginning, right? There was only so many people around. Um, so now, as the human community has expanded and grown, God wants to make abundantly clear, here's what's okay, here's what's not okay. And certainly there's a lot, I mean, Judah and Tamar, right. that, you've got that story in Genesis 38. Um, and I, I, it strikes me again, the last one, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uh, uncovering her nakedness while her sister's still alive. Um, you think of Jacob with uh, Rachel and Leah, 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 right? Well, that's exact, pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. Just stick with one wife. I know. It's a, it's a fair question. I don't have an answer to yeah. it. But, yeah, that's kind of the, the bottom line. Yeah, Court. He's pointing at all the men doing the evil. Correct. And not the no, that's right. I mean, this is addressed to, to the men. Uh, that's not to say that the, the women weren't um, capable of this also, but that recognizing that the responsibility, first and foremost, fell on the shoulders of the men, and that more, more often than not, they were probably the perpetrators. Yeah, that's right. So the story of Lot and his daughters. Yep, Lot and his daughters, exactly. I mean, I go on and on, which is perhaps a segue to um, this, the next section here, in verses 18 through 23. All right, now we get to some more real juicy stuff, okay? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. All right, so here now we get into the stuff that... Um, Leviticus is more famous for, or maybe infamous, <laughs> so the, some of these um, prescriptions and saying the things that are not allowed here. So you have in here, um, you know, how to deal with a woman while she's on her period. You have um, adultery in the, the traditional sense. You have child sacrifice. You have homosexuality and what's called bestiality as well. Goodness gracious. Um, to kind of lump these things together, uh, and number three on your handout, sexual immorality, the Greek word, the New Testament word is porneia, okay, familiar kind of root word there. Sexual immorality of all these various kinds contradicts divine design. Contradicts divine design, okay. I want to unpack this a little bit. It's always helpful. I think um, too often we, as, as Christians, will talk about just the, the negative side when it comes to sexuality and lose sight of God's intent and his purpose for sexuality in the proper context which is to be lived out, which is the one flesh union of marriage. Um, I'm doing uh, premarital counseling with uh, a pair of couples right now, a couple couples. <clears throat> and this is one of the sessions we talk about are the purposes of marriage, um, which are set out for us in the, uh, the rite of holy matrimony in our hymnal, which is a good kind of just compendium or summarization of the biblical teaching of what are the purposes, what are the goals of marriage 
as the scriptures teach it. Really four things. First of all, to be an icon of the divine bridegroom, Jesus, and his bride, the church. That it's meant to be the case. Husband and wife are meant to be reflections of the union between the bridegroom, Jesus, and his bride, the church. This is really significant. That it's, not, um, that it's not just arbitrary that you have husband and wife, man and woman, but it is ultimately a reflection of, of God's uh, ultimate intent for all creation to be part of that union with himself. So this is something I think too often gets overlooked, even among Christians talking about marriage, that it has this gospel uh, foundation to it. Secondly, perhaps the one we think of most readily, is for mutual companionship. Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Okay? So that companionship between husband and wife. Thirdly, delight in one another. This is the wording of, of the, um, the, the rite in the hymnal, but there's an implication there of the, the physical intimacy. Okay? The sexuality is meant to be enjoyed within the context and the covenant of marriage, and that one flesh union. And then, corresponding to that as well, the bearing and rearing of children, recognizing not everyone is able to bear, but that God's desire and his, his intent for his creation is that, um, through, that there would be a fruitful union of this one flesh union. And so the children would be born and then reared um, ultimately in the, in the faith. This is the, the purpose, these are the goals of that one flesh union of marriage. If we lose sight of that basic target of what it's about, of God's plan for sexuality, then we'll, we'll, just, we'll get distracted and just focus on, on negative things, losing sight of the positive of what God has given to us in, um, in sexuality and in marriage. Thoughts or reflections, questions about marriage and what it is? Yeah, Chip and then George. So just curious, maybe you've touched on this, where, when, you know, having multiple wives became, like, not a good deal, because, like, you know, Solomon famously, you know, had right. a good share there, you know, obviously by the time it seems to be in the New Testament, it seems to be falling out of, out of favor, right, so does God ever declare this not a good idea, and they just violate it, seems like, he, or does he not ever address it, and they just figure out, like, this is a lot of work, right, this is, this is not working out, right, you know? Like natural law, like this is just yeah. Well, yeah, there definitely is the natural law side of it. But um, to be sure, the the plumb line, if you will, the, um, the the standard that God has set from Genesis chapter two is when a man leaves his uh, father and mother and cleaves to his wife, to his one one when wife. When a man loves a woman, um, he can't keep his mind on anything else. Um, uh, there is a continual. Um, call and summons back to, to, to God's standard. Um, it's interesting you don't see uh, the prophets calling out, like you say, Solomon for his many wives. You would have expected more of that um, for that to be, to be an issue, but I don't know that it needed to be reiterated as much because it was, it was there. Um, so it wasn't a change of heavenly policy or something like that. The plan from the beginning was one flesh. By the time we get to uh, the New Testament and, and our Lord Jesus, it doesn't seem, polygamy doesn't seem to be as much in practice. And I don't know historically, I'm not sure when or why that like, was. That is so specific here. Right. But this is a big one to like not address. Right, right. I'm just, it's just, you know, like. Yeah. It's down to the very detail of your neighbor's sisters, brothers. Yes, right. You know, main yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a fair point. Yeah, George. Yeah, um, I always wondered about the whole concept of a monk or a monastery, you know, the single men off by themselves forever. Right. And that came from the church. How, how did... I, I how did that come to be? Yeah. yeah. Property rights. Uh, well, no, so I mean, historically, and I'm not uh, an expert on this, but my understanding of it is that it starts in the Middle Ages. So it wasn't there at the, at the very beginning. It starts in the, in the Middle Ages and that it really becomes kind of church policy in part because of, of property rights. And it gets really complicated because you'd have the, um, the, if the, the priests would be presiding over the, the parish and if they're taking a, a wife and now they're having kids, would the, um, the property then go to, to the church, to his family, to his lineage? 
And so it was kind of expeditious for them just not to be married at all. Um, it was almost like a, 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 what would you say, a legal expediency um, to have them be single. It was not the biblical teaching. Um, they would point to, well, Jesus wasn't married, which is true. Now, Peter, who was first pope, um, so-called, he was married. And we know this from the scriptures themselves. And furthermore, it says in 1 Timothy 4 that, you know, in later times, they'll say you can't get married and that that's not good. It's not good that um, people would say that you can't be married. That's teaching from, from the evil one even. So, um, yeah, it arises in the Middle Ages and obviously still and continues maybe to this day. Maybe about the same time that nuns became, but supposedly they were married to Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. I mean, and virginity is held up. Within the, within the New Testament, as this is a good and God-pleasing vocation for those who are called to it. Not everybody is, um, but this, I think for nuns would, would lay claim to those scriptures that speak of that, of being chased for the kingdom. Yeah. I kind of always thought it was from Paul's passage where he said, and this was Paul speaking, not yes. God. Yeah, right. I wish that everyone could be like me. Yeah. But they can't, so... Yes, right, where, where marriage is almost conceded to as a plan B. Like right. plan A. No, and, and this is a, certainly a passage that would be pointed to, for sure, where it's like, this is the ideal. Now, even um, conceding that to be the case, um, as I think Luther and Lutherans might even be willing to do, it would say, but it's not, it can't be mandated that everyone has to follow this course. Because, just like Paul says, human nature being what it is, you know, uh, marriage is, is a good thing and a necessary thing in many respects. So is it okay for pastors or priests not to marry? Yeah, sure, of course. It can be a very good thing, able to devote themselves more um, fully to the, their ministry. But um, it shouldn't be the only way by any means. And, I mean, there's some real chilling passages in our Lutheran confessions written 500 years ago speaking against uh, priestly celibacy, saying, look, this is going to lead to all kinds of awful things. And there's implications that it already was, and that was kind of known at that time, at the time of the Reformation. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of that continue to play out and come to light, I would say, over the last couple of decades. So. Paul was not married, right? Paul was not married, as far as we know. Yeah, Paul was not married. I don't think it mentions it one way or the other, but. Uh, yeah. Under. Hang on, travel scares over. Right. Well, right, exactly. under the pharisaical thing, one of the things it would do is choose a wife for him. Yeah. Even even young. Right. Whether he ever got married, I don't think it says, That's but it's, right. just, it's just implied that he does not. Yeah, that he did. Right. All right. We've got just a, a few minutes left. I want to, um, to touch on this just briefly, and if we want to talk about it more next week, we can. We talk about this divine design, and when it comes to husbands and wives, but also, of course, um, the, the uh, elephant in the room there with, in Leviticus 18.22 is, what about homosexuality, right? You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This is a verse that gets used and, and trotted out and misused uh, both by people, folks who really want to make it clear that the Bible is against homosexuality, but also by People on the other side who want to say how retrograde and backwards the Bible is. It's, oh, this Leviticus stuff. Or to throw it out and say, well, this, this doesn't apply or it's not relevant or, or whatever else. Uh, I think it's, uh, the important corresponding passage to look at is in Romans chapter 1. In, in Romans 1, uh, I'll start with verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the big takeaway in this passage, that in our sinfulness we suppress the truth and that unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because, but, they, 
became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, Uh, these are uh, hard words that Paul is speaking. Understand what his basic point is, though. He's saying the wrath of God is manifested already in creation. And he he adduces, in particular, these homosexual acts, not um, simply as provocations of divine wrath, but as evidences of it. In other words, Paul is is pointing out homosexual activity as a especially vivid example of how creation has gone off course by suppressing the truth of who God is as creator versus creature. His main focus here is not even so much to say homosexuality is wrong or that it's sinful, although he believes that, and we can point to other passages that say that. But here he's saying fundamentally that this is evidence of how we have strayed from that divine design. He uses an example that would have been um, very uh, apparent uh, to anyone living in that Greco-Roman culture where homosexual activity was not at all uncommon, um, for them to, and they would have agreed with his premise that this is contrary to, to God's will, his explicit will that we have in the law, but also, as, as Paul's bringing out there, we call the natural law, that this is not the way that God has designed us to be. All right. So then you say, well, okay, well, wh- what are we supposed to do with that? Or what, is, what does this mean for people who are gay or lesbian or, or so forth? A couple things can be said, I think. First of all, the Bible does not speak at all about an homosexuality as we think about it today. So today we, we have a lot of focus in our culture on sexual identity of your sexual orientation. Okay? So that's what we talk about. And that becomes kind of your key identity. So that if somebody is gay, that becomes the overriding truth about who they are. Biblically speaking, this just is, is totally foreign to their way of thinking. And in fact, you can look at Leviticus 18 itself. It doesn't say if you're gay, that it's an abomination. What does it say? It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. In other words, the, what it speaks against over and over again is not the inclination, which in many, if not um, most or all cases, people cannot control. The, what's focused on and spoken against is the activity. As indeed for so many sins, like we're going to have desires that are contrary to God's will. The question is, are we going to act on them, right? Now, as Jesus will say too, simply having the thoughts can be sin in their own right, right? Um, But when sin, um, says in James, desire gives birth to sin and the activity, that's what the scriptures speak against. So are there people who have these urges and have those drugs? Well, yeah. And we don't need to say, oh, if you have that, those desires, then you are inherently unacceptable to God. That's not what the scriptures teach. What they do teach is that homosexual activity and behavior is contrary to his will and to human nature. All right. Maybe that's a fine distinction, but are you with me on that? I think this is a, Go ahead, Jim. Why does it say lie with instead of uncover your nakedness? There's a departure there in the... Well... What is New Testament Old Testament? No, in, no, in, in, in Leviticus. Leviticus. Yeah, so right. Uh, lie with a male issue with a woman. Instead of uncover his nakedness. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good question. I think that the uncovering of nakedness does also have that, that connotation of it being an incestuous relationship among you know, uh, familial relations as well. Uh, I can't say that conclusively, but that would be off the top of my head. I think that's probably why. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Let me just make the obvious point, which I think we all know, but still needs to be said. Um, homosexual sin is regarded as sin in the Bible. It is not singled out for special, as a special case or something that ought to be focused on more than other things. And indeed, if we were just to take Leviticus itself, Leviticus 18, 
We ought to be preaching a lot more on incest than on uh, same-sex, uh, <laughs> I don't know. But um, I think that it's, it, it's something that needs to be recognized and taught about and talked about and not just like, oh, there's that cousin that nobody in the family wants to talk about because they're all ashamed of it or something like that. No, it's something that can be addressed and discussed. I would say from the biblical perspective, to have same-sex desire, um, sexual desire, is a burden as a cross to be borne. What is different and what is, I think, more challenging in our contemporary moment is that it's not viewed as a cross to be borne, but it's viewed as something to be celebrated, affirmed, whatever you want to say. And it's this, it's this difficult line where <coughs> we, as Christians, we love, we love every, all people. We're called to, to love all people and to point them um, to the source of true life, um, while also recognizing that, that sin is sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. That our own sexual sin is not to be, uh, you know, we, we set that aside, but we really focus on um, those, of, uh, those who are same-sex inclined. Um, I don't know. I could go on in, in this train, but thoughts or questions or reflections or practical questions that you might have too. Yeah. What about people, okay, they're gay, lesbian, whatever, <laughs> and somebody comes up and says to them, you're going to hell because you're a homosexual. Right. But they're a Christian. The, the yeah. homosexual is a Christian. Right. Yeah, so you should not you should not go up and say that to, to people. Right. Well, I, I know, but I, I know, but I know people that have said this. I know, no, I know, I know. It's a big thing right now in my life. Uh, yeah, and I, um, why, why has this become a thing, and why is this uniquely singled out? Because you don't often hear about people coming up and saying, well, you know, you're greedy, you're going to hell, right? Uh, or, you know, you're too fat, you're going to hell. Like, these are, we don't do this about most other sins. It's treated differently. I'm not sure why that is. Suffice it to say, I think we do the best for folks who are struggling with this, not by treating it as special, but also not by treating them uh, with kid gloves and acting as though it wasn't what it was. We, we love them. Look, I think the biggest issue with, with this is that it becomes that core identity and like the main thing about people, which then it's a first commandment issue. When we say your identity is that you're, you're gay. Like, no, that's one part of, of who, who I am. So I think gay should always be an adjective rather than a noun. By that I mean maybe that can be a modifier, a descriptor, something about you. But, you know, I don't want to view other people, oh, you're, you're a thief, you know or you're a fornicator, or whatever. Um, ultimately, we are, are sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We all have our issues that we're wrestling with. We want to point people back to the hope that we have in, in Christ. So that's, I don't know if that's helpful or not. But a little bit, a little bit yeah. Other, other questions or thoughts? There's, there's so much baggage with the church. On so this, much baggage. On this issue, it, it's almost hard to, to wait to wade through it. You know? It really is. This, is. this is like red meat, right? This is like, because it, it was taboo, and, and now it's not taboo. I mean, now right. the church used to be on the side of what was commonly accepted, and that's why incest is not something to preach about, because people still, for the most part, with incest is wrong. Yeah. They don't believe that about homosexuality. Right. So now you're in a whole different world there, but it's just for a certain part of the church, and maybe not the Lutheran church so much, but maybe other parts of the church, you know, homosexuality is a way that it's a it's a it's a way to to preach against it is a way to rally your troops. Sure. Right? Because this is this big ab abomination. Now, right. Of course, the Bible speaks much more about money, for instance, to do sure. about sex. But you know, right. This is this is an easy one. It's right? an easy one. But, right. Um, my question for you is is more about like it. You you basically said it, but love the sinner, hate the sin. Right. Yeah. And it in it, it and and I I believe in that. It's just hard to do. I think mainly because of what you said is the identity yeah. of that person is so wrapped up into that label of being gay or whatever it is, and it's hard for them when you say, "Well, yes. I, don't, I really don't like what you're doing," right. but I don't basically say I don't really like because they're thinking, "Well, I'm gay. That's that's who I am." Right. 
know. And so, okay, so yeah, and this, I mean, this is so hard, but I think that's the place where maybe we can have those conversations where, listen, that's where I want to call you out. I'll tell you a story from uh, uh, Will Willman, who I, I quoted my inklings this, this week. Um, Dr. Willman, my teacher's at Duke, he tells a story. He was the dean of the chapel at, at Duke. And, uh, and a famous author. And, and a, a fa famous author and stuff. And, but uh, one day, this young woman comes to, uh, up to him, and she says, I want to receive communion at, uh, at the chapel here. I'm a baptized Episcopalian, and I'm a lesbian. And uh, uh, Dean Willman says to her, well, if the first thing is true, then the second one can't be true. And she said, well, what do you mean? You're saying just because I'm a Christian that I, I can't have these desires or whatever? And he's like, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. What he, he says, what I'm saying is your identity is you're baptized. Your identity is not that you're a lesbian. It, your identity is not that you like other women. Your identity is that you're a baptized Christian. That's what makes you who you are. And that's what I really want to push back on in the conversation as it happens in our culture today is the sense that your sexual orientation is your, your be-all, end-all identity. This is who I am. And this is where I think we can love the people in our lives who are, uh, are, are wrestling with this or not wrestling with it, as the case may be, um, to, uh, to, to love them, but to push back on them gently when they say, well, this is just who I am. This is my identity. No. I mean, uh, speaking to those who are, are Christians or who believe in the Lord, right? No, your identity is as a baptized child of God. That's who you are. Now, you happen to be attracted to people of the same sex, and we can talk about that. But don't forget where your identity comes from. That's where we get into trouble is when it becomes, oh, my identity is I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm transgender, I'm whatever. Those are not the things that define who you are any more than all the other, other sins that we might commit or whatever. That's when we get into a first commandment kind of, kind of stuff. Yeah, Ann? same way when like any of us say well I can't do such and such or I can't be friends with so and so because I have this political right uh, yep I'm a Republican I'm a Democrat I can't, yeah I can't be friends or I can't you know <clears throat> yep hands off yep it's off limits to me I'm not going to do this or that or mm -hmm. I am going to do this or that because that's who I am yeah I'm just you know, I was born a Republican, so. Right. No, instead you can say, I'm conservative attracted, or I'm No, okay, sorry. Um, I, but truly, like, in, in our culture, uh, when we talk about the tribalism and all these sorts of things, I really think it's because we tend to be tempted to derive our identity from these other places rather than from Christ and from who, who we are in Christ. I hope you guys hear that I'm trying to keep this balance here because it's not that we're, I think we're on the other side where you get into trouble is when we just act as though it's not sin, it's no big deal, we're just going to whitewash it. You're not doing anyone any favors by doing that, right? By the same token, we're not going to win anybody in the kingdom of God by coming up to them and saying, you're homosexual, you're going to hell. In fact, your premise is already um, in flawed because you're, you are playing into that idea that notion that that's what defines who you are, right? All right, a couple more. Yeah, George. Um, I think the thing that's confusing, particularly for older people like my, ourselves, um, we can accept all these things, but then all of a sudden the government is saying the, the moral guidelines that we've used, mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments, right. you know, the, Judeo-Christian ethics and things. Right. Um, we can live in that world, but then the government says, no, these things are okay. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't believe you can use uh, Wait, well, we, marriage infidelity yeah. as, as a cause for divorce anymore. Right. This is, that's okay right. for everybody. Right. Just the, there's the definition of marriage, how that has changed and so forth. And I would say that as Christians, we need to recognize, you know what? The world is going to go in its direction. It's not our job to, it's not our responsibility to, to try and make the government Christian if we could ever do that. 
We want to contend for first use of the law type things, recognizing that God's way ultimately is going to be the best for humanity, but we need to be able to reason with our neighbors who don't believe in him on grounds that they're going to be able to understand and accept too. So it's, a, it's really a, a tough issue, but I mean, if Pastor Newton were here today, he would say, well, we're in a post-Christian culture. This is how it is. Sorry, I can't. I always have to impersonate him. But um, it's, it very much is. We're in this post-Christendom context where people just don't accept the, the Bible as the authority that maybe they did at once. All right, the music's telling me that uh, you know, I'm being dragged off the we're stage not. here. Um, but uh, we can, if you have thoughts, questions, we can pick up from here next week if we want to talk about this a little bit more. I mean, you know, I know we could go a long, long time on it. Um, but I uh, hope this has been somewhat helpful for you. Thank you for um, your thoughtful uh, um, participation, and we'll see you next week.